Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Scran, the podcast that shouts from the rooftops about all the best Scottish food and drink. I'm your host, Rosalind Erskine, and this episode is all about coffee, a topic we've never looked into before. Coming up on the podcast, we have guests Lisa Lawson from Deer Green and Neil Glover of Figment Coffee. But before we hear from our lovely guests, my producer Morvin is joining me for a chat because sadly this episode is her last one and going forward she'll no longer be the producer of Scran so I thought I'd invite her on to make her Scran presenting debut. Hi Morvin. Hi Roz, I know I'm so sad to be leaving Scran. It feels like my baby as I've worked in it from the very beginning. Our first episode you and I ventured to the Christmas markets and I cannot believe that was November 2019. I know, it seems like a lifetime ago and also, I don't know about you, but time for me right now has no meaning because of everything that's happened. And also, eating food from the stalls and walking around a rammed Christmas market seems so alien to life right now. But I have to ask and put you on the spot, what's been your favourite episode so far? Oh, that's a tough question. I really like Scran on the Road part one and two which was last summer because at the moment we mainly have virtual recordings and I felt like you were really taking the listener on an adventure and actually from the episode my parents visited the Craig Ellicky Hotel so that was definitely a family favourite. I also really enjoyed the episode The Secrets of a Wine Connoisseur with Fizz Feast founder Diana Thompson because I really like both white wine and fizzy wine and it was cool to find out about how to pair wine with food. Good choices, even if I do say so myself. <laughs> I also know that you're a big coffee fan, which suits this episode. Um, So what is your coffee of choice? A latte, hands down, no hesitation there. It's just nice and milky, not too strong, but still hits the caffeine spot. What about you? So if I'm out and about, my favourite coffee has to be a flat white and specifically from Absolute Roasters, who were just down the road from me but have moved about quite a bit um, recently. For an at-home coffee, I love the hazelnut flavoured coffee from the Edinburgh Tea and Coffee Company, which... Um, it's not a syrup so it's the, the hazelnut flavours within the coffee and honestly when you open the bag and like stick your head in which I do quite often <laughs> um, it is the nicest smell ever. Oh that does sound good. I also definitely have my favourite coffee shops. I'm lucky because where I live there is an abundance but if I had to choose one place uh, Project Coffee in Brunsfield, Edinburgh makes a really nice iced latte and that's really nice as well as the weather's getting a bit warmer. And I've actually got a surprise for you. So I know that you like to play quick fire games with your guests. And so I thought I'd put the shoe on the other foot and test your coffee knowledge. The game we're going to play is two truths and a lie about coffee. And you have to tell me which is a lie. Are you ready? Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> you put me on the spot, but okay. I probably deserve this, so okay. <laughs> yes, a taste of your own medicine. Right, <laughs> so I'll read out the three facts for you. And then at the end of them, you can tell me which one you think is a lie. So, first one is decaf does not mean caffeine-free. The second one is the darker the roast, the stronger the coffee. And the third one is the majority of coffee is produced in Brazil. Do you need to hear any of those again? Uh, I don't think so. So, I know that caffeine 
decaf doesn't mean it's caffeine free. I know that. Yeah, that's true. So I've got a little little fact for you. So while the okay. decaffeination process removes at least 97% of caffeine, virtually all decaf coffees still contain around 7 milligrams per 8 ounce. So that's apparently what... So even if you're drinking... I actually didn't know that before until I looked it up. I, you obviously did, but um, it's still it's still better than drinking, obviously, a caffeinated coffee, I guess, a normal one. But yeah. it's yeah, it's not caffeine-free, which is interesting. The second one, the darker the roast, the stronger the coffee. Is that true or a lie, do you think? I would, I'd potentially say that's the lie, although I don't know too much about the geography of coffee. Oh, you're right. So, <laughs> yeah. so uh, roasting actually burns off the caffeine and gives you more of an acidic taste. In other words, the lighter roasted coffee beans are actually stronger in caffeine and flavour. So there you go. Good to know. That is actually a good, that's a good lie though, because you would think that the darker the, the roast, the stronger the flavour, because it looks it looks dark so it should be strong but no that's yeah and the last one the majority of coffee is produced in brazil that is also true it accounts for 40 percent of the world's coffee so you did well there you you've actually you've lived up to expectation (laughs) (laughs) thank you well thank you very much for the quiz morvin that was uh, nice to have the tables turned there um and thank you so much for coming on i really miss working with you Thanks for having me. It's been lovely. I'll also miss working with you and Scran and of course I'll still be a loyal listener. No pressure to the new producer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'd also like to say that if you're not listeners, Scran Series 3 will still be continuing and we will have our new producer shortly. I still have lots of great guests in store so please stay with us. Now speaking of guests, we'll hear from Lisa and Neil who bring different aspects to the coffee table from sustainability to social conscience. So get the kettle on and let's begin. Today I'm joined by Lisa Lawson of Deer Green and Neil Glover from Figment Coffee. Hi guys, how are you? Hi, good, thank you. Hi there, good, thanks. Um, So obviously this podcast is going to be all about coffee. Um, So I'm going to start from the beginning of both of your coffee journeys. I know it's not necessarily something that people enjoy throughout their entire life. You know, for example, you usually come into coffee maybe a bit later in maybe your 20s. So what is your first memory of starting to enjoy coffee? Lisa, I'll come to you first. Yeah, I started drinking coffee actually when I was working as a chef and uh, I worked, I was in Edinburgh. I remember just working really long shifts, 14 hour shifts and coffee just kind of got me through. Uh, And I didn't really see it as a a necessarily enjoyable product at the time uh, to drink. It was just, you know, it was fuel for the shift. And then it wasn't until I went to Australia and that was in 1999. Someone called me a 20-year coffee veteran the other day, and I couldn't quite believe it. But yeah, 20, over 20 years ago, I went to Australia, and I ended up working a coffee roastery. And it was from that point that I discovered, you know, it was just a silly job packing beans for money to go traveling. And it, it worked out to be, you know, something, experience that changed my life. So that's really the pinnacle moment for me uh, when I sort of realized that coffee from, from all these wonderful places. And um, yeah, and never looked back. And Neil, what about you? So, uh, yeah, I guess I used to drink coffee sort of after dinner, like a lot of people would have done. I didn't drink it a lot. Um, And then probably eight or nine years ago, I actually uh, started another business um, uh, in a different industry. Then I was traveling over to the States. Uh, I was just sort of didn't have an office. So I would have meetings in coffee shops, things like that. And uh, I, I have it in my 
I basically I went to this place called Greenway Coffee in Houston, which is in this basement of these four massive office blocks, and I had like a latte that actually changed my life. Um, it was it was just like nothing else I'd ever tasted before, and I couldn't under, it, it didn't even feel like it was coffee to me. And I just got started chatting to the staff, and they were saying how they roasted their own beans and they brewed it in a special way, and I just started tumbling down this rabbit hole of of discovery and uh, just yeah everything from there just went went from there that I started getting into specialty coffee, uh, being more selective in where I drank my coffee into specialty coffee shops uh, and the scene in the US was definitely more advanced than it was here, and and just totally fell in love with it. So all from there really. And you mentioned a latte. You, is that your favourite coffee now, or do you drink other things? No, so I think that was because I was, uh, I would drink, uh, I still, so I tried to add separate. So what I say is I drink black coffee for work and I drink white coffee for pleasure. So I was worried that if I started, you know, being in the coffee business, I would start to hate coffee or just, I don't know, become sort of inured to it somehow. But yeah, flat white is what I drink for pleasure whenever I can. So yeah. And Lisa, what about you? Do you have a favourite coffee? Oh, it changes all the time. <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, I drink filter coffee every day. That's kind of like my go-to, uh, drinking black coffee. And yeah, it just depends what's new and exciting at the time, what's seasonal or what roast we've just tweaked and pulled extra flavours out of or, yeah, or sometimes just where you are and who you're with and if the sun's shining, you know, it's going to affect how you're feeling about your coffee so right now I'm drinking a, a geisha varietal which is like super floral really intense citrus flavors and I just thought yeah I just have a little sort of pick me up while I was on the chat to you so that's a bit of a treat for me today and that's a new bean that we've just got into the roast and done the first roast of so yeah that's my favorite today <laughs> nice and that's that's the thing people might notice when you go into coffee shops they have you know different types of beans and they have like tasting notes almost like a wine or a whiskey how does all that come about? Does someone, you know, how do you know that that's what it, that's what those tasting notes are? Does that come with the bean or do you have someone that sort of tastes them for you and then writes those? Uh, well, for me, I've done a, a course called Q-Grader and I'm also an authorised trainer for the Specialty Coffee Association and Sensory Skills. So you can actually train your palate, you can train your senses and then you can start to pick out these flavours. It's all completely subjective, but then you can learn objectively how to analyse coffee. If you don't have those skills, then porters and exporters will kind of help you along the way. You'll always get guidance from whoever's selling the raw coffee to the roastery. Um, and then the roaster can advise the baristas, but then how the barista brews a coffee or how you brew your coffee at home can just change, can alter the flavour as well. So how you extract those flavours can make it sweeter or more bitter or fruitier or you know more intense if it's on an espresso or uh, more diluted uh, if it's on a filter coffee so yeah endless possibilities and endless flavours as well. So there's a lot going on from the days of just a, a Nescafe teaspoon with some milk and hot water <laughs> <laughs> which is what my dad drinks. No, that's totally right. But it is what you say. There's many more comparisons now with wine and beer. So the the terroir and the varietal of the of the bean have an impact on its flavour, just as it does in, so if you've got a, a French Chablis and an Aussie Chardonnay, it's the same grape grown in two different locations, tastes completely differently, maybe processed in different ways. And the processing also impacts the coffee. So real um, obvious comparisons between 
uh, wine and coffee, I think, now. Yeah, that was that kind of leads me on nicely to my next question, which was obviously we don't grow coffee here. So what are the main coffee-grown regions and how do these affect taste? Obviously, you know, you've mentioned terroir there. So obviously coffee beans from different places around the world will taste different. Yeah, and there's and there's so much to it. There's obviously is the 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 region, the climate, a lot of, your altitude has a big uh, impact, and um, a lot of people actually equate altitude with quality. I don't think it's quite as simple as that, but it's a very it's a starting point definitely for almost like the higher the altitude the coffee bean has to grow at, and the higher the quality, the higher the density of the bean, um, and those also impact how we can. Uh, roast the bean uh, as well but uh, I don't know I think you can get a a huge range of flavors from I I don't think you can say that South American beans taste a certain way and African beans taste another way but but definitely your your key sort of growing areas are probably um, Africa particularly East Africa and then you know South America within even each each of those regions each country you can get beans um, that are grown in specific farms that will taste completely differently to other farms that are grown very close by. As I say, I think it's really difficult to say one region tastes more than another. Would you agree with that, Lisa? <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, there's a kind of a classic flavour notes of African coffees are going to be higher in acidity uh, and that is possibly related to the fact that they are grown at higher altitudes and they take longer yeah. to ripen. Um, yeah, and there's lower altitudes, less dense beans than, for example, Brazil. Uh, and then they have different flavour profile, milder flavours, and maybe different acidities because of that as well. And then there's processing methods. So coffee can be uh, washed um, as soon as it's pulped from the cherry, or it can be dried. Uh, the seeds can be dried within the cherry. So you can get really different flavour notes from a naturally processed um dry processed or wet processed washed coffee as well so really clean bright flavors versus you know sort of more intense concentrated dried flavors or tropical fruit flavors if you if you know if you get coffees from Ethiopia or producers if they can are experimenting with like different fermentations and uh, even different um, varietals and grafting of different you know varietals producing a climate change resistant bean and all sorts of research and uh, progress going on right now as well. Yeah, yeah, you can't, yeah, you're right. You know, you can't really classify it into, definitely not into regions and set flavours, but um, loads, loads and loads, basically, from all the different regions that are all equatorial and high altitude around the world. And is that just people are experimenting with these things for flavour or is it also, as you said, Lisa, with uh, like climate change, is, is it to do with growing coffee or getting things to be a bit more eco-friendly? You'll get a lot of maybe uh, importers or exporters in the Western world just looking for a unique selling point and a unique flavour. And some of it's done really well uh, and others less so. So it's an interesting, uh, yeah, it's an interesting process to follow and to try and you know, try and get the best of it. Sometimes it can taste really vinegary or sometimes it can taste really sweet and interesting. Uh, so it's a bit of a trend right now. I don't know if the trend will hold. I don't know. We'll see. It's maybe not my favourite. I'm quite a purist when it comes to the processing methods of coffee. Uh, but yeah, loads of interesting stuff going on for sure. Yeah. And when you guys buy and get your coffee, you both roast it, is that right? And what does that sort of achieve? Why? Why is that a thing? Roasting coffee, you can just put raw coffee inside a coffee roaster and bring it out and turn it brown and it will be roasted. But like anything, you can do it well. Um, 
or you can do it really badly. So, you know, I think I used to quite often equate the roaster's role, um, you know, um, sort of with the wine industry, you have the, maybe the um, viticulturist, the, um, the winemaker, uh, you have the sommelier. So, you know, it's a bit like that with coffee. You kind of see like there's the coffee farmers, there's the agronomists, so that's the side of our industry. And the next side is how the roaster manipulates the flavours of the coffee and the roaster and then you've got a barista who can you know um sort of nail it on the brewing or not so with roasting process what you're really trying to do is um choose temperatures and batch sizes and drum speeds and air flows within your roaster which will enhance the coffee that you've sourced so you can um roast out some unwanted acidities and then you can caramelize natural sugars if you've sourced a sourced well and got a coffee that's got lots of natural lovely sugars in the first place uh, and yeah it's trying to find that real balance where you're increasing the body of the coffee you're retaining the natural sweetness but you also have that really lovely acidity that makes the coffee um tasty and mouth-watering and um and enhances like natural fruit, fruit flavors that you get as well uh so yeah that's the aim of it for us um I think. Anything you want to add, Neil? <laughs> no, I just, I just think it is. Once you start to, uh, once you start to work as a roaster, you just realise how many variables there are that impact the the bean. I, we actually did an experiment just uh, a couple of days ago. We just been, we were struggling with a specific bean, and we decided to. Uh, so there, there's a thing called first crack that we work to, and and then you've got your sort of uh, development time after for after the beans have cracked. Um, uh, and we just started, we took some beans out at 30, um, one minute and a minute 30, because we thought we had it dialed in, but we wanted to try and do something a little bit better. And when we end up tasting those, so this is only 30 seconds of difference right at the end of the roast. The 30 second had virtually no flavor. It was really bland and, you know, just nothing to it. Uh, and then one minute later, it was just full of flavor and zingy and had acidity and brightness. And, and that's just 30 seconds at one part uh, of the roast in one bean um, without really changing any other variable. Um, so when you're looking at temperature and airflow and uh, drum speed and uh, the, the beans themselves, it's, it's incredibly complex. And um, Neil, from your point of view, so my so listening to all this, I'm I'm liking it back to my knowledge of whiskey, and it sounds a bit like a kind of master blender in the sense that you are trying to achieve a certain taste. Are you trying to achieve that taste with every single roast? So are you trying to keep things like you know this is what this coffee will taste like every single time, or is it okay to have different tastes a lot of the time? So it's a little bit of both. So we have a blend called Wonderland, which is sort of our um, our core blend, I would say. It's what we run in the coffee shop. And that, we try to make that so that it, the customers get the same experience every time they have it, wherever they have it. So that's a job of, of trying to make it taste the same, like I suppose your, uh, your blended whiskies would be. But then really with the single origins, we are looking for variation. We're looking for variety. And, and that's what we're really trying to draw out every single time, you know, we roast one of those coffees. We really want them to taste different and distinct. And that's what's exciting for me. Um, I, I do love giving a consistent customer experience. But it, as a roaster, you're looking for the things that, oh, well, I didn't expect that. Let's, can we exaggerate that? Can we bring that out more without damaging another part of the flavor? 
so yeah that that for me is the is the exciting bit it's trying to draw out the the variety and the flavors nice so we've had uh we've had kind of a kind of coffee shop cafe culture for quite a long time since I'm guessing the 90s and Starbucks, <laughs> um, but things have moved on a lot since then. There, there's a lot more independent coffee shops now, so obviously we still have our chains, but I, I feel like in the last, say, five to ten years, there's a lot more independents who are serving up, like you guys, different kinds of coffee, um, and people are more interested in the process behind this. Why do you think that is from a customer point of view? Do you see that your customers have changed, they're more interested, they're maybe a bit younger? Like, what's what's your kind of demographic? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, I've sort of worked in hospitality for a long time um, and through different aspects of hospitality and coffee is never taken seriously. And think you know I sort of remember when um, Starbucks opened in Glasgow and I remember living in Sydney and I remember opening there for the first time and I think it really did change the culture certainly in Scotland because prior to that uh, we were really a tea drinking nation if you got anything a takeaway hot beverage it was usually a builder's tea in a polystyrene cup and you know that's in the sort of biggest city in Scotland 20 years ago and from that we've progressed we've got chains we've got local chains as well as the um, international chains and we have an awareness of coffee and we now have a coffee drinking community. And then alongside that, we've also had um, a change in hospitality and in the food culture. Uh, people are labeling themselves foodies. We've got Michelin stars. We've, you know, it, you know we've got more um, connections and communication where people are taking pictures of their food and it's all over everything now. And, and people are obsessed. And I think the same drive and desire for knowledge has paralleled in the coffee industry. And it's happened all over the world. It's happened in every city. So we've watched it happen when I was in Australia 20 years ago and then maybe 10 years ago or slightly longer, maybe around like 2017, it was really happening in London. And I know that I was working in a coffee bar in Glasgow 2010 and, you know, that was one of the few places doing latte art and really talking about the origin of beans. There's maybe only two cafes in Glasgow doing that at the time. And this past 10 years, the amount of roasters, the amount of cafes, and then the next generation of people who were baristas who are now cafe owners. And it's just progressed. And along with that, um, you know, the customer base has grown as well and been more interested. And actually, it's become quite mainstream. So specialty coffee is almost the norm. Uh, and you can choose, do you want a coffee from a chain or do you want, do you, want a, you know, a specialty coffee or do you just want a coffee? Do you know there's, there's options? Consumers have all these options now, just like you do with, a, you know, a restaurant you go to, a bar you go to. So, yeah, it can only get better. It's really exciting. I can't wait till someone just asks me, talks to me about varieties of coffee the way they would about great varieties of wine. And, you know, like someone walks into a bar and asks for a New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I want someone to ask me, um, you know, for an SL28 from Kenya, you know, or, you know, or from, or from a region in Kenya or from a washing station, a factory in Kenya. So um, that's what we're aiming for next. <laughs> the only additional thing to say, I, I do think customers are becoming, well, as Lisa's already said, more discerning. People are looking for that. They're more interested in where the coffee comes from and the story behind it. And, uh, and yeah, and I think we're reacting to it. But I, I think I, I do still definitely think that Glasgow is still quite far ahead of us up here in Aberdeen in terms of, of that, you know, having more independent coffee places to go to, having more choice, more available 
you know, all around the place. And I definitely, I also think Lisa won't say it herself, but Lisa's definitely instrumental in some of that in terms of Glasgow. So, yeah. yeah of course, <laughs> you've got the uh, the coffee festival, don't you, Lisa? Which was slightly different this year. I I partook in some of it. it was going about the the coffee shops in the West End, asking what their what their deal was. But um, yeah, you've you've been behind that for a while. Yeah, we we tried to find a solution, uh, a pandemic solution. <laughs> so uh, we'd already sold lots of tickets and we'd already started the organisation of the festival. Uh, so come March, we kind of knew that we weren't really going to be able to host it in May. And actually, in fact, it would have been just this past weekend this year as well. So it's been postponed twice. Uh, so yeah, last year we just asked 50 cafes to take part. Um, everyone who already had a ticket could join in for free anyone else who wanted to join in had to pay a fiver and it gave you deals in 50 businesses across the city for um what did we do 10 days so it was across two weekends and one full week uh, so hopefully you got your money's worth but it was just a solution it was just a way to bring the coffee festival to the cafes uh, and to make it safe to keep it local as well no one could travel anywhere but they could essentially walk and get a takeaway coffee so um, and just to keep everyone connected, I think, you know, it meant everyone was in the same email thread and WhatsApp group and businesses could actually chat to one another again and feel part of something rather than, you know, feeling super isolated and lonely like everybody was last year, just trying to find a way forward and survive, I think. Uh, and everyone was really bored at sitting at home, let's face it. So we wander about, I think. It was good. But yeah, hopefully the main festival can return at some point. Um, uh, yeah, really hopeful of that. And next year, we might be in a much safer place to do it. Yeah, hope so. Uh, so one of the things that I noticed when I worked in a cafe, which was about a million years ago now, um, was it was a black coffee. It's now Americano. And then there was a thing called the baby chino, which people used to ask for their kids, which was hot milk. <laughs> um, so why why do you think language around coffee changed like that? And what are your favourite coffee buzzwords now and I'll have a go at guessing what they are because I probably won't know <laughs> so I don't know I mean so you, you sort of mentioned Americano um so my understanding of the history of the Americano actually goes back to the second world war so that was when the like the GIs were coming over to Italy and their you know American coffee historically was this really long um, very watery sort of brown liquid and they couldn't handle the espresso that the Italians were making for them, this really strong, vibrant drink. So they would just add water to it to basically dilute it. And then, so the Italians referred to that as an Americano, which is where that sort of phrase originates from. And I kind of think it's just marketing. And I think it probably does come from the Starbucks that we're looking for cool ways of describing their coffees, different ways of describing them. And, and then we have just uh, adopted them sort of over here. And I, I still think that certainly in our cafe, we still are fighting a little bit against the preconceptions that Starbucks has put in people's heads. Um, we get criticized sometimes because our drinks are not big enough. Um, and, you know, the latte is not, not big enough. It's the world's smallest flat white we've seen posted on Instagram and stuff. Um, because people are used to these, um, the sort of, Starbucks marketed um, sort of stylings. But for me, that's where a lot of this language kind of comes from. But the original language comes from uh, the, you know, the Italians who invented the, the coffee machines and the you know, espresso and, and all of that. 
Yeah, I think the coffee language is a lot more standardized these days, you know, whether it's like a cafe latte or a cafe lait or a cafe con leche, it's all the same thing. It's just a different language from a different country that has a coffee culture. And because we came late to coffee culture, we've just picked up bits and bobs from everywhere and sort of um, put them together. And everyone's, you know, different cafes have found their own language, maybe. Um, Starbucks has kind of supersized it all, perhaps. Uh, and we've kind of like tried to pull it all back a bit. So uh, my experience in Australia is flat white, short black, long black. You know, the Aussies are pretty straightforward. It's short and black or it's long and black. And, uh, you know, that's a whole other part of the coffee language for the specialty coffee industry as well. Like there's still, you know, there used to be an argument between who invented the flat white, the Australians or the Kiwis. It's like, who cares, really? You know, what's the white coffee? It's usually in a six to eight ounce cup. Um, if it's if it's a larger cup than that, it's more diluted and it's milkier. So it's a latte, you know, and it's quite easy once you know, once you stop and take a step back and look at it all. Um, but yeah, like cortado, macchiato, you know, there's a small difference. Baby chinos, yeah, they've been around for a while. A little bit silly. I think there's probably a dog equivalent these days because I a dog <laughs> instead of a child, you know. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what other what words we can throw at you, Rosalind. <laughs> well, I need to hit you with the puppuccino then. <laughs> oh yeah, well that that would be that would be more up my street than a baby chino because I have a dog. So <laughs> although I don't necessarily know if I'd want the dog to be having a lot of milk. So yeah, yeah, I can't say that I agree with it, but uh, <laughs> it exists. <laughs> yeah. Talking of milk, um, dairy-free milk options uh, are huge now. Are they good for crafting good coffee? Have they become better? Are they better than milk? What are your thoughts on them? I know some people don't have a choice, but it's good to kind of discuss. I don't have a cafe, so you're probably the best one to answer this one, Neil. Yeah, then I mean, we've definitely seen the growth of non-dairy milks in, in the cafe, even over the last, uh, definitely over the last uh, two years, you know, significant uh, growth. I, I mean, it was maybe sort of, maybe 10% of what we did. And now I'd say it's probably 30% of what we do. Um, so it is a, a big number. Um, I, I do think it is, it, certainly from the barista's perspective, it is more difficult um, to create good latte art and to get that texture um, than it is with whole milk. But you still have that challenge if you go to uh, uh, semi-skim milk, uh, just because of the fat content. Um, and... But, but the, the non-dairy equivalents, the manufacturing now have got very smart uh, with that. They're now sort of adding oils uh, and they, they've got barista versions of these, uh, of these uh, milks or um, yeah, oat and vegetable products. And, and they're getting a lot closer. So I would say now um, with some of the products that we use, um, the, the guys are doing as good a job uh, with a, a non-dairy um, as they are doing with with dairy now not definitely not all products are created equally and um, there are some that really stand out and others that are, are very poor and um, they might be good in other ways just in terms of how environmentally friendly they are or how they even how they taste um, but looking at it specifically from how they mix with coffee and how well we can steam them and produce that you know, that delicious velvety texture in the cup. Um, some are definitely stronger than others. But uh, no, it's it, uh, the manufacturer definitely improving their game all the time. There's new products coming out all the time. You know, there's oat-based. There's the original, all the sort of nuts 
Um, now there's pea-based products. There are some that are mixing all of them together. Um, and there seems to be uh, new versions coming out almost every month. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting. And it's just an, another variable, you know, to sort of bring into the, the, the coffee culture. So we talked a little bit about where you, the different coffee regions and, and you guys sourcing coffee, but farmers wellbeing um, is a concern. Um, and I think people who drink coffee are becoming a bit more aware of like, you know, ethically sound, you know, farming and practices in terms of the farmers, but also, you know, uh, eco-friendly. So how can customers to coffee make sure that they're buying ethically sound coffee? Uh, Lisa, I'll come to you first. Sure, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge question. The reality is roasters can't even know they're sourced ethically sometimes. Uh, and so a consumer, you know, I don't think has got a whole lot of chance. Uh, it's really hard to source coffee. I think what we focus on is absolute traceability uh, to origin and we work with um, approved suppliers. Um, and we have a supplier code of conduct. So, you know, we're asking all these questions to along our supply chain about child labour um, and, oh, yeah, all, sort, all sorts of stuff. We're also B Corp um, certified, which is a third party audit, which um, ensures that we have all this in place and we, we're audited for it. So for me, I wanted just to have absolute integrity that if anyone does ask me, I, like you just have, I can be transparent about that and say we're audited for it and we ask all the right questions. I think if you are a consumer, what you really want to ensure from your cafe is that they are, um, you know, ordering a coffee from a well-respected roaster, that, um, you know, maybe they know their coffee is seasonal, they know everything about the coffee. Um, you know, there's lots of um, words that describe coffee and not everyone really knows what they, what they all mean. Is it the name of the region? Is it the name of the farmer? Is it the name of the certification? Like, there's just, there's not a lot of education around that right now. And I'd like to see that progressing um, so that everyone is far more informed right along the supply chain and or what you know sometimes referred to as the value chain because we want to add the value and we want to see money going back to the farmers. Essentially, coffee is a commodity um, and it's you know traded against uh, the commodity prices around the world. It's probably run by whatever the Brazil price is that year because that's one of the cheaper coffees, it's the highest volume of coffee. Um, and there's not really a lot we can do to control what price a farmer gets. What we can just do is make sure we're buying from the right people and know that they're sourcing well. Um, for me, I've gone to Coffee Origins every year to make sure that I really trust the suppliers I work with. Um, I don't really feel like I have a purpose to go anymore. I'd already decided carbon footprint reasons last year not to go. And I'd already been to visit a lot of the farmers we buy from. So I feel like I've seen with my own eyes that they're treated well um, and the connections I've, I make and I've, the questions I've asked, I ask have all been answered. But yeah, there's huge questions about it. There, you know, there's been stuff online uh, about child labour on a dispatches programme, I think it was last year. And, you know, I got really angry about it. And it was kind of like clickbait, um, big shaming the big companies. But ultimately, the small companies are buying from the same supply chains. Uh, and when you're buying from a developing country, um, there's no childcare, there's no skills. <laughs> it's the reality. And you want to put these things in place to offer sustainability to communities. And you want to work with suppliers that have that outlook. Um, but you can't criticise um, a producer for not having 
everything in place that we do have in a Western Western world because it's a completely different world. Um, I can get on my soapbox even more and talk about this all day, <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting conversation and one that we should always keep open. I mean, there is certain elements of, of trust in all of this. Um, you know, our customers have to trust us that we're doing the best that we can. We have to trust the coffee, uh, the, the the bean importers, the coffee sources that we're working with um, to make sure that they're doing everything that, that they can. Um, and I think for customers, it's about digging into the story, dig into the roaster, read the story about the coffees, um, you know, ask the baristas questions. Um, uh, I think that's the, the only way, really. And then if you do, don't get an answer that you like, then maybe that spurs a good roaster will maybe take that on the chin and try and do something about that. Or, um, you know, maybe it tells you uh, the answer that, that you need to know. Um, but yeah, certain, certainly an element of trust. But uh, I think it is reputable. Roasters are, we are you know, we are trying to do uh, the right things try to make try, uh, try to do good out of uh, just people drinking coffee I think is an important thing that we're that we're trying to do um, but yeah get to know your roasters dig into the stories uh, deep and uh, and uh, help us to uh, do a better job of that it's uh, definitely one it's, it's actually interesting all those points I'd never really thought about the child labour aspect before but you're right Lisa there's not there's not the same infrastructure in these places so it's almost like that needs to be in place and and then how do you put that in place maybe you know maybe the bigger chains can do more with their influence but I, I mean I don't know enough about how it all works but um yeah it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one to think about and again so far removed from your Nescafe with milk <laughs> yeah um uh, Neil, you recently teamed up with um, a Perth business for a collaboration. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think this is our attempt to do exactly what you're uh, talking about. Try to uh, make sure we're sourcing our coffee um, in in the right way. Um, that we get to know the people that we're buying the coffee from, build a relationship that we can trust in and that our customers can trust in. So yeah, we got the opportunity through a, like an East African specialist called Omwani, uh, who had sort of struck up a conversation with an estate in Madagascar. And this is a country that had had produced coffee um but then due to sort of poor infrastructure and lack of investment and you know political instability had had you know drifted right off the map and had never um produced specialty coffee um but there was this one farm that wanted to do something different they called it regeneration and it was a a project basically to to start uh farming exclusively arabica beans to a producing to a specialty standard um, also for that then to benefit um, the surrounding uh, community. So this has never been done before. And that conversation led on one in saying, well, we would need some investment in order to um, start that process. It can't happen on its own. So then they came to a group of roasters and just said, would you be happy to essentially pay way over the odds for this coffee in order to um, help start this project? So um, yeah, ourselves and Manifesto Coffee in Aberdeen uh, made that commitment uh, and as a result of that we both got five kilograms of coffee 
um, to roast and to sell to our customers, which is a tiny, tiny um, amount. I mean, that's essentially less than one batch of coffee that we would normally roast on our roaster. We just felt there's a really good chance that this country could produce amazing coffee if it just got uh, a chance. So, uh, yeah, so we made that investment um, last year. And then January this year, we got our coffee in. And with the support of our customers, we sold it out in just a few weeks, which was amazing. And we got to try and share that over social media. We asked them to tag the estate. The estate was able to see that people all over the world um, were enjoying coffee, uh, producing them. This actually, you've just made me realise that um, for anyone that doesn't know, what how does coffee come about? It's part of a, a is it a, a pod, a seed, or something in in the tree? That how so what what is what is coffee? Probably should ask you that first. <laughs> so coffee is a fruit. This is the first thing that like often will blow people's minds. So we just so the green coffee bean is the seed of a cherry. So normally we would eat the cherry and spit out the pip, but with coffee we remove flesh of the cherry and we keep the pit and then that whole the way that we that the cherry is processed will then also impart flavor to the the seed in different ways and then it's our job to treat that bean in such a way that we can bring out those different flavors depending on the processing methods um etc etc all the things that we've just discussed so if the seed was left would it grow more coffee trees plants so um, if the cherry uh, fell on the ground and the seed went into the ground, would another one grow? Yeah, I believe so. Yes. <laughs> well, that's, and so, what happens to the cher- the fruit around the seed? Well, I think originally, <laughs> and Lisa, you might have to have to help me out here. Um, originally, I think it was just uh, essentially discarded or maybe used to uh, put back on the, the the plants. But people are now starting to use it to make. Um, a juice i can't remember the name of it um but uh, they are finding other uses for it now um, as well there's actually not a whole lot of flesh on a on a coffee cherry so the seed is of more value than the flesh so quite often when the coffee cherry gets pulped the flesh it isn't discarded it will be composted and then used um on yeah on the coffee farm again so quite often um, you know, coffee farmers might only have a tiny bit of land where they grow other crops uh, for sustenance for, you know, them and their community. And they'll grow some cherries and then they'll pick the cherries and take it to the local cooperative or washing station to be processed. Uh, and then they might just pick up some compost, you know, from the previous uh, harvest to take back to their farm to use. Um, so, you know, I think it, there's a lot of like sustainable farming practices happen at Coffee Origins. For the pure reason, like 
it's what you do when you don't really have anything. You just find a use for absolutely everything. Um, so there's a real circular business model with coffee farming. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank thank you both. I'd I'd never even thought to ask that, but yeah, it's uh, interesting. Um, so the last part of the podcast, there's two, it's kind of quick fire rounds. The first one is desert island drinks. So, um, Lisa, I'll start with you. If you could only take three drinks onto a desert island, what would they be and why? Oh my goodness! Well, I've got to say coffee, haven't I? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I might just. Uh, yeah, expand on that one. Yeah, special. I'd definitely take specialty coffee. I'd probably take an African coffee. Um, yeah, maybe a Kenyan or Ethiopian washed uh, bean with me. Uh, yeah, um, I, you know, I really love uh, sparkling wine. I'd probably maybe take like a Cremant de Bourgogne or Cremant de Loire or a Champagne or something. Um, you know, you need a treat, don't you? Yeah. Uh, and water, we need water, don't we? That, I need that to brew the coffee. So, yeah, that's what I would go with. Yeah, survival instincts, um, coffee, because it's my absolute passion, and champagne for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And Neil, what about you? Um, oh, I'm, I think it might be, I'm going to kind of copy Lisa there. Well, definitely water, obviously, just to survive. Um, I would go for like a natural Ethiopian coffee. I just love just the the big, bold, juicy flavors. And along those similar lines, I think for my treat then, just a Californian Cabernet Sauvignon or an old Vine Zinfandel, uh, an amazing glass of full-bodied, lip-smacking red wine. So those would be my three. Nice. Um, and the final quickfire round, I'll start with you, Neil, is called My Life and Food. So it's five questions. If you just tell me the first thing that comes into your mind, if that's all right. Okay, I'm terrified, <laughs> but yeah, go for it. <laughs> it's not that bad. Okay, so whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Macaroni cheese. <laughs> comfort food for me is... Oh, uh, pie, steak pie. My favourite childhood dessert is... My mum's lemon meringue pie. My food heaven is? So hard, it's so hard. <laughs> and it just dessert, basically dessert. I would, I would forgo every other part of the meal just to have pudding. And my food hell is? Um, mushrooms and saffron. Oh, I don't like saffron either. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a genetic thing, I don't know. <laughs> I'm still waiting for someone to say coriander, but anyway. <laughs> oh no, I love coriander. <laughs> And Lisa, um, I'll come to you now. Whenever I'm hungry, I think of... Uh, cheese, yeah. <laughs> Comfort food for me is... Definitely chocolate. My favourite childhood dessert is... Mm, yeah, probably my grand's pudding, like an Eve's pudding or something like that. My food heaven is... Uh, oh, I love going to like a really lovely Michelin meal. Like I'm going to go like, not even just mention one thing, like a proper like seven courser with wine. It's got to be something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and my food hell is? Oh yeah, like junk food, fast food. Can't stand it. Yeah, processed food. No thanks. Well, um, thank you very much, guys. I think we're all going to go off and have a coffee now because it's really put me in the mood. <laughs> Thanks so much Thanks for good. Thank having you. a chat. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks again to Lisa and Neil. Coffee is such a big craze at the moment and it's so good to find out more about sustainability and social conscience. And where you can, please try to support your local coffee shop. 
Also, please rate and review Scran. I'd love to see more reviews and in the next episode, I'll read them out. So if you have five minutes, give us a rating and a comment. Scran is a logical production brought to you by The Scotsman. Presented and co-produced by me, Rosalind Erskine, and co-produced, edited and mixed by Marvin McIntyre. Thank you.